and thank you for joining me for another episode, episode two, in fact, of Five Car Garage. Uh, my name is Joe Berry, I'm the host of this podcast. And uh, first off, I want to start just by thanking everybody for um, downloading and listening to the first episode and for the reviews and the, the great feedback that I got. Um, it really, really meant a lot to uh, to have you all listen, so thank you for that. Episode one was great, and I think that is in no small part down to the fact that I actually got Magnus to uh, to join me. He was a great guy to talk to and listen to and, and learn from. I learned a lot from, from meeting him and getting to talk to him properly. I really wanted to keep momentum high for this episode two, and so I got one of my very, very good friends, a fantastic racing driver and guy who's embedded in the classic car scene over in England and Europe, Mr. Sam Hancock. Now, Sam and I met each other working for Petrolicious um, when we were making documentaries for their channel. We got to spend months and months and months with our good friends, Dennis and Sam and Rosario, touring Europe and more often than not Northern Italy, getting to drive and make films and write about some of the most fantastic cars, uh, most of which were homologation specials uh, that you could ever imagine. Sam and I um, got really, really close on, on those trips and, and I count him amongst one of my very best friends now and uh, it was fascinating to be able to sit down with him, albeit via uh, our iPhones, and talk through his five-car garage. Now, while I'm on the subject of iPhones, it is worth saying again that this was recorded remotely. I'm here in Los Angeles and he was in his office in London. And, and so um, the audio is pretty good, but um, but please do forgive the odd moment where there's a little uh, pop or, or, or bang. And also towards the end, the last sort of five or ten minutes or so, there's an ever so slight delay between he and I. So again, forgive me for that, but... Uh, He's uh, at that point, he's talking about the fifth and final car in his five car garage. And I couldn't bring myself to chop it out of the podcast. So um, so do forgive me for that. Sam is still making films for Petrolicious. He's also the face or one of the faces of the fantastic Collecting Cars series. Uh, Sam has put out a couple of really, really good films with them on which you can find on YouTube, one of which he drives a, uh, a C9 Sauber. Um, and it's just a fantastic film. And um Sam has a really great way of explaining to people like myself who may know lots about cars but but haven't got the sensation and the, the feel that a racing driver has. He has a really good knack of being able to describe all of that to us in terms in which we understand. So I really appreciate his films and, and that one's a really good one. So do check that out and obviously the rest of the collecting cars uh, output. Sam's also on Instagram at Hancock underscore Sam. So do go and give him a follow if you don't already. He uh, posts a ton of really good stuff and uh, is a welcome addition to any Instagram feed. And that's about it. I'm going to let you guys get on, enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back at the end to uh, say thanks and goodbye. Enjoy. Awesome to be talking with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Not at all. This is this is fun. I'm so pleased you got this thing going. It's it's a cool concept. And as soon as you first ever mentioned it, I thought, yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's going to fly. That needs to happen. So you said you're you're in uh, you're in West London. I wanted yep. to get your uh, thoughts on 
first you know on London and um, and on the UK and and ask you if you still think that the UK is the hub for motor racing that it you know that it has been traditionally do you think that that is still still the case um it's a hub i don't know if it's the hub i mean certainly in terms of modern racing and the geographic location of a lot of the world's top teams um there's a huge number of formula one teams here for, for the formula one industry if you want to call it that is very uk centric and i think there's something like eight of the 10 teams maybe maybe yeah. seven i forget that are based in what we call motorsport valley which is just up the m40 motorway sort of oxfordshire northamptonshire gloucestershire kind of way and that's right in the in the sort of middle of england and um for whatever reason i think it, it's born out of the cottage industry of certainly early grand prix era maybe not early actually maybe sort of middle of the cent- middle of the last century kind of grand prix era era where there's a lot of teams that sprung up but also a lot of local specialist suppliers and they gathered pace and fast forward 50 years and there's some very capable very scaled uh, very niche but highly skilled um, businesses around now that supply a lot of elite motorsport so yeah i think for modern car racing it definitely is i don't know if it's right to say it's the hub globally or if it's if it's a hub because i'm sure if you said it's the hub then there'd be all sorts of americans and germans and japanese that would take offense but um, it's got to be up there yeah i think you're right and i mean you know what's really interesting and what's been a very interesting development over the last sort of 10 or 15 years is how much you know the the emergence of social media has has, has allowed for hyper globalization and the fact that now you know all these little places which were as you said you know cottage cottage industries and and you know maybe places that only had a couple of employees can now have 150 200,000 followers on Instagram and and you know kind of amassed um this huge cult following and and I'm sure you know that's sort of attributed to them getting more work and I just think it's fantastic um I think it's great that these that these places are uh uh, you know, uh, 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 thriving and um, yeah, everywhere. totally, which is great. And so, were you born in and around uh, the area? You know, sort of motorsport valley. Um, not quite up that far. I'm, I'm sort of just just outside of London, really. Chertsey, just south, just outside of London, and grew up in in the suburbs around there. Before my parents sort of moved us a little more towards the countryside in Hampshire, when I was. I think 10 or 11 or something like that, which coincided perfectly with the start of my racing career because we ended up just sort of 10 minutes away from Camberley Kart Club, which is a circuit called Blackbush. And um, that's where all of my racing started. And, you know, at the age of, crikey, uh, certainly racing at nine, but probably way before that, there was a little disused airfield runway next to um the karting circuit and my dad who used to race carts occasionally would take me down to the airfield on a quiet sunday afternoon where you could just figure it out with nothing to crash into because it was just this vast expanse of tarmac <laughs> which for a absolutely terrified sort of five or six year old that was new i knew i was desperate to have a go i was desperate to drive and i i the yeah. cart the cart itself dad's cart used to lean up against the wall in the shed and i used to go out there regularly and sort of stand next to it and see try to gauge if i was tall enough yet to yeah. reach the pedals and um so i loved just going along 
when when I when we could to this sort of strip of tarmac next to the karting circuit before I was old enough to actually race one properly and just figure it out. But this is in the days of proper high revving, high pitched, loud engine, two stroke, hundred cc carts, and I had not prepared myself for that as a sort of six year old. And I remember the first time I got aggressive, you had to sort of lift the back end of the cart up or your dad did and then run along a few paces and then drop it down to aggressively bump start the engine and um, being talky little two-stroke motors you only have to breathe on the throttle and before you know it you're flying so imagine <laughs> little old me i've never done this before no idea what to expect and uh i'm pretty sure you know, i'll get in trouble with mum for this but i'm pretty sure i didn't have a helmet on i was probably oh, in sort wow. of t-shirts and shorts and, oh my God. and the first time you know getting that, that bump start and the engine firing up and just literally being completely out of control <laughs> <laughs> with no, no idea how to turn or brake or start oh just but, but luckily i had space to figure it out and um that was that was the start i'm pleased to have improved since then <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen you exhibit those kinds of reckless uh, yeah. just yeah. disappearing off into the sunset. But, uh, yeah. I've seen that once or twice, but I'm glad, yeah. to, glad yeah. to hear you got the hang of it. Yeah. Um, so so what kind of speeds could you achieve in those things? Oh, they were, well, so the, the cart specifically yeah. that I'm talking about was, was the one Dad was racing. So it's very much an adult's cart that was, mm -hmm. um, I forget what it was called at the time, Senior Britain or something like that. 100 national i think and they were 70 mile an hour carts all day long bloody hell uh, but i my first sort of steps were in racing steps were in what, what was called a cadet which had a little uh i forget 50 or 60 cc coma engine um and that but even that was a good sort of 45 miles an hour 50 miles an hour for which for a bunch of sort of slightly crazy eight-year-olds you know going around racing each other is is fast enough uh, yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying speeds for me now, age 28. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason we call you Captain Slow. Hey, 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 come on. Film sets. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, Sam, on that note, I want to ask you what the first of the cars in your five-car garage would be. Yeah, well, it's... Uh... I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to start at the top and then we could just gradually go downhill from there. <laughs> but I figured I'd try to get myself off to solid, uh, you know, off on solid footing with yeah. something that would be hard for anyone, I think, to dispute. Um, you know, I'm a racer at heart, so uh, a lot of my tastes tend towards competition cars. And um, from, from, from my standpoint, the best of the best, the greatest racing car ever designed uh certainly in terms of looks and you know performance was pretty good as well so i think it has credibility in addition to its looks is the 1990 ferrari formula one car which was the 641 and specifically i like the 641 slash two um which has just got a couple of little tweaked details like it's, it's sort of a beautiful curved uh, shape to the the very tip of the nose um in contrast to the to the earlier version which has got a sort of a, a, a flat nose and just tiny little details like that just pulled the whole shape and design together and I, I know I'm not alone on this it's 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 often held as the most beautiful Formula One car ever but it is with very good reason it's absolutely breathtaking from any angle and for me it epitomizes the appeal of 
that era of the very late 1980s and very early 1990s where we had what I think was a quite a brief window of normally aspirated engines very high revving this is mm. post mm -hmm. the turbo era of the mid 80s which I think we sort of lost the noise as we're in the middle of today as well modern formula one we've lost the noise and the same thing happened in the 80s because we'd had this these glory days of the the, of the ford dfe and the ferrari v12s and so on through the 70s um and then we sort of got into the 80s and everything went to turbo which i now appreciate in a different way and, and i'm quite sort of in awe of the turbo era as well but it got good it got it just it returned to its all-time glory at the end of the 80s when they returned to naturally aspirated engines when they were still allowed v12s they were still allowed v10s um some i think had v8s but the cars had yet to sprout all of this sort of bodywork right sort of jewelry if you want to call it that they they had very clean front and rear wings and otherwise the bodywork surfaces remained clean and so the lines were uninterrupted and crucially it was at a time where the rules allowed what now seems to be a uh, well what went on to seem to be a, a wide track car as mm. opposed to let's say the the, the mid 2000s when they were squashed and quite narrow um, and they sort of lost proportional aesthetic appeal uh, to me at least uh, in this era of the late 80s and early 90s they were wide but they also had wide tires now what i noticed is the current formula one cars are just as wide about two meters wide and they also have wide tires but the lovely space between the wheels across the car is now full of gubbins diffusers and tightly mm -hmm. packed aero and all these sort of appendices that appendices or appendages sorry i don't know uh, appendages <laughs> um, that uh that didn't used to be there and so there's this wonderful moment in time that's i think lasted from sort of 1989 1990 1991 where there's this fabulously clean aesthetic combined with very wide tracked and wide tired cars that had a, a huge presence visually which i think a formula one car should have by rights and this extraordinary soundtrack and that for me is a, a potent combination that is hard to beat and the the ferrari 641-2 i think is is the best of the best wow okay and uh have you ever how close have you gotten to to driving one have you driven one well it's great no it's great timing to ask that question i haven't driven one sadly but um when i'm not at a track part of my job is working with collectors and racers and i do a bit of driver coaching and a bit of advising and help people sort out you know their cars for their race programs and get involved in a bit of brokerage and so on and just two or three weeks ago i was a very special surprisingly sort of you know hidden away little workshop uh in germany where i walked into a room at the back of this workshop and, and don't get me wrong this is not like walking into some glamorous five-star modern formula one factory right. kind of scenario picture frankly kind of the opposite um where you go around the back and you know past bits of scaffolding and corrugated kind of roofing that's chucked on the on the ground <laughs> and the odd bit of old bodywork that's sort of left outside to rot 
and you walk in and there is you know immaculately prepared and presented probably gosh at least 10 at least 10 of just the most exquisite Ferrari Formula One cars wow. I've ever seen under one roof in one place wow. ever. Uh, and among them was a 641 slash two. Jeez. And I seem, they had so many there that my mind blurs a little bit now about exactly what was what, but I'm pretty sure it was a Mansell car. Oh, wow. And the lovely thing about this place is a lot of the cars haven't if you go so ferrari have this thing called corsa clienti which is a is a a department they set up for wealthy privateers to buy ex ferrari team formula one cars but keep them with the factory Mm. for maintenance and preparation such that the new private owner can go and enjoy driving them on a small number of private track days that ferrari set up during the year well that's fine but the problem is those cars obviously uh restored maintained highly polished and and they looked like new which is kind of is nice there's something so special about going to this other place where the cars were as they finished their season and so little things like the labels on the switches on the steering wheels Mm. or on the dashboards had just started to discolor and peel away and think things just started to show their age much like if you looked at an old fighter plane or something like that from you know any frankly any era of of the last century they they might be well maintained and ready to fly but get inside the cockpit and they'll show their age when they'll look a bit dated but in a really i think a really stunning way and so all of these cars had that and um obviously the one that i was desperate to sit in i sat in them all obviously yes 10 year old child (laughs) Uh, but the one i was desperate to sit in was was the 6412 and um what a thing i mean i it's it was shockingly small i mean i'm a big guy particularly for a racing driver i'm six foot two and um you know i don't need to encourage you to remind me that i've put on a few pounds in the last few years so i'm i'm definitely the wrong shape and size to be trying to slide into any of these cars but i was shocked at how yeah, I was shocked at how tightly confined the cockpit of this particular car was. Really? Particularly knowing that it was Nigel Mansell's because, yeah. you know, I've met Nigel, I've sat next to him at dinner, and okay, he's not as tall as I had thought, but he's a stocky, strong yeah. guy, and yeah. that was always his strength. He had this real bull-like strength. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is not a wide cockpit car at all. And quite interestingly, the sides of it on the interior of the cockpit are just slab flat like just slabs of carbon it may as well be slab you know planks of wood so yeah so there's no internal curvature for your your hips or your elbows or anything it's just it's literally like getting into a coffin and that's it and you've barely got room to move um and and in those days all of the dashboard dials and switches and controls were not on the steering wheel. They were on a traditional dashboard behind it, which always causes me a problem with cars of that era because it takes up a load of your knee height. It hangs right. quite low and is quite deep. And so um, the only saving grace was that it had paddle shift. So you didn't need to move your arm around too much to get down some gear lever which needed to be next to your right knee which takes up space there so everything being up 
you know, paddles behind the steering wheel. And remember, this was the first car that introduced paddle shift to Formula One. Right. So that, that's another element of it. This is, well, the, the first iteration of this car was the first one that introduced paddle shift. So this was a real game changer. And it, you, know, you don't have to search on YouTube for too long to find comments from Ayrton Senna, who was obviously a rival at McLaren at the time. And they had to struggle to get a paddle shift system in their cars going. And, you know, they struggled to get it working. And then, you know, it did work. And Senna very reluctantly had to agree that it was, in his words, a, a technological step forward. But he said it through gritted teeth because he knew it would close the gap between, you know, the haves and the have-nots in terms of who has the talent and who doesn't quite have the talent. Uh, it just basically made life easier for the drivers. And, and so Senna was famously against these kind of technical developments. Wow. So it really is a, you know, a very important race car then. I think so. I think so. I remember also naturally aspirated V12 revving to yeah. God knows what and just the sensational soundtrack that was, I remember, you know, I used to go to Grand Prix at Silverstone or whatever in that, in that era. And I, I remember you could always hear the Ferrari coming because it was the wow. only V12 at the time. Wow. And all the cars sounded great, but but you knew it was the front and it was just slightly better than everything else that was already fantastic. So, and, and if you dial into YouTube and search any of the onboard, just listen to the noise. This there's, I think the entire onboard footage uninterrupted, unbroken from Gerhard Berger's, would it have been, I think Berger was there in 1990 or 91. Anyway, whatever, very similar engine. So, but, just imagine listening to that for an hour and a half whilst you're racing a Grand Prix. I mean, oh, incredible. Biblical. Awesome. Yeah, wow. Magic. magic. Great, great first choice. I can see it sat there in the garage now. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> in, in the garage, in the sitting room, you mean? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah it's a thing of you Get rid of the TV and just have the, have the 641 yeah. sat there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. So, yeah. Coming back to your career then, as a as a racing driver specifically, what um, what would you say is your most memorable race? Oh, good question. Um, oh, the one that I, I suppose I suppose you have to go with your, your gut feel, your gut response. Then mm -hmm. the one that springs mm -hmm. straight to mind will forever for me be the one that got away. But it's also the one I'm. I'm always reluctant to talk about because I sound like that sort of washed up old has been that kind of recounts oh, no. tales of what of what might have been. And well, and come I'm, on, I'm we're, just, we're all I basically just have to accept that that actually is the case. No, it's, um, I had I had I, the one that the one that is most memorable is the one that hurts the most, which is uh, 2010 Le Mans 24 Hours. I was driving for Aston Martin Racing. It's the only time really I've managed to get a, a you know proper works or factory drive whatever you want to call it with one of the you know the proper big teams in the top category the lmp1 category at le mans and wow. you know the 24 hours of le mans is to me one of the world's if not the world's greatest motor race and i've i've always yeah. loved it and it, you know to race in it was a childhood dream to then race in it and forge a career in that world was beyond my dreams but then obviously your your ambitions evolve don't they so then you want success in that arena and um that was the year that we were massively outgunned with our 
you know, petrol powered V12, naturally aspirated Aston Martin LMP1 prototype, but it was a hell of a car, stunning to look at, beautiful coupe that was wearing the, the you know, traditional and iconic golf blue and orange livery. And again, it had this beautiful sound that made it very unique, particularly at Le Mans, where you don't really have too many engines of that configuration making a very Formula One-esque noise, actually. Um, and I didn't imagine we'd get anywhere because we were up against the diesel Audis and the diesel Peugeots. And I, I imagine that the back end of the top 10 might be our best case scenario. But, um, but we did better than that. And we had a solid and steady race and stayed you know, in the sort of top eight, top six and top five. And long story short, towards the end of the 24 hours i was in the middle of my final actually i finished what, what yeah i finished my final double stint wow and then they i was on my in lap and they said look can you just do another stint so a stint is a is a tank of fuel and it lasts about 50 minutes something like that i remember right. very reluctantly having to get back on the radio and faking a sort of you know totally calm re relaxed response of yeah sure no problem i'll do another stint where actually all i was thinking was oh god i'm absolutely knackered right um, because they were physical to drive i'm a tall driver which i've always said it's a brilliant excuse but when you've got longer <laughs> limbs uh, the, you've got more leverage to, to push the Push again. So I always <laughs> sorry, that... I'm sorry. I take I take umbrage with that. I'm, I'm trying to bite my tongue, but that's a lot of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, go on, carry on. Sorry, uh, sorry. you're a twat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it, so whatever. Look for for either reasons of of I couldn't have been unfit or not fit enough. I was training my nuts off during those those times in the gym twice a week running marathons you name it so this is all i could console myself with was the idea that a taller driver with longer limbs has to put up with more g's in the corners but whatever it's probably a load of old bollocks anyway i was <laughs> knackered and i was very looking forward thank you to you know getting out of the car having done a safe and reliable, solid job and handing yeah. over to my teammate to, to take it safely to the back. So when they asked me to do one more stint, it felt like just one of those annoying, extra unnecessary rolls of the dice, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Was that, so was that, and just just to pause quickly, what time of the day was this? Are we, are we talking, are we close to the flag? Are we? What, what yeah, so it would have been, so the race would have finished, I think, at 4 p.m. on Sunday. So yeah. it would, would, let's say it would have been about, um, two p.m. ish, something like that. Uh, I think. Yeah, so you've yeah. done a, you've done a fair old, uh, a fair old stint, you know. Yeah. So we, you know, we're three drivers like everybody else, and you sort of rotate through. But f for reasons we don't know, need to go into, you know, w one of the three didn't end up doing that much. So my team, my other teammate Darren Turner, uh, who's obviously superstar and has won, won Le Mans, I think two even three times in class mm. with Aston Martin um he and I had to do a lot of the heavy lifting um and so yeah I, I mean I was fine but it was just one of those ones where let's just say I was I was quite pleased to be on my last lap of my last yeah. spin, only to get the call that I need to stay out for another hour or whatever it was but but that was fine so so did that hour and then got to my last lap of my 
actual now, the new last stint, there's about an hour of the race left to go. I'm wow. called to the pits to hand over to Darren Turner. Uh, and a safer pair of hands to get your car to the flag you couldn't ask for. Um, and I thought we were in about sixth position, maybe seventh. So I wasn't absolutely certain. And I don't really know why. I'm not sure. I can't remember why I'd lost track of it, but I thought we were sixth or seventh. Um, which would have been fine, by the way. I'd have been reasonably thrilled with a, let's say, a top six finish at Le Mans. Yeah. That, that would have been something to be really proud of. Um, and so, yeah, I got my radio called Box, Box, Box. And halfway around that inlet, I suddenly lost power and the engine oh. engine sounded like a bag of nails and suddenly started no. to get a puff of smoke in the cockpit. And sure enough, looked in the mirrors and could see little flickers of flame coming out the back. And yeah, long story short, the engine had let go and oh. um, and we were done. And I had to, you know, pull over and park on the grass at uh, it was just on the exit of Indianapolis on the entry into mm. the, the tight right at Arnage. And it's a very weird experience, actually, just a little illustration of maybe the, the strange, quite, the, quite sort of robotic place your, your head goes to when you're in the middle of a long race like that. I, I had absolutely zero emotion at the moment it was all happening. I remember just trying to go through the, the processes of figuring out if I could get the car to a position of safety, parked next to a fire marshal, parked, parked next to a, an opening in the Armco barrier, and yet at the same time the car's not very stable on the grass, and I was trying to sort of sort that out, and you're on the radio to the team at the same time, and you're thinking about the sort of shutting off process, and so you haven't yet got any emotion going, or disappointment going, that you're out of the race. And Anyway, I did manage to park the car, got out and looked across the road. It's a very small bit of the track there. And on the opposite side, it couldn't be more than 20 or 30 meters away from you is a, is a grass bank full of um, sort of spectators. But they're wonderful spectators because they're the guys that have traipsed several miles to get around to that part of the road. And there's probably only a few hundred on this grass bank. But, you know, they're really hardcore fans that really... Are committed and they yeah. love Le Mans. Love the and love the race. Yeah, what was so weird is I think I saw some sort of Peugeot flags and Audi flags. And anyway, I got out of the car, I took the crash helmet off. I remember just this load of noise coming from that spectator bank towards me and just thinking, I, I felt like they were sort of booing and jeering, i.e., we're Peugeot fans, we're Audi fans, you're a British Aston, boo, ha ha, you're out of the race. <laughs> And it, it was really weird because obviously they're not doing that. And it sounds ridiculous to say that now, but it took me a few, I don't know, seconds, a couple of minutes to realize it was the complete opposite. Obviously it was. It, it was Le Mans fans applauding an effort at the, yeah. and, and one that didn't make it to the finish. Fair enough. Many cars don't. But they they were just great fans supporting an effort in that moment. And when I realized that, it was uh, it was the the exact moment that the penny was dropping that we weren't going to get our top six finish and and I was gutted completely gutted but it was this lovely little lift in that moment of absolute despair and I'll never forget it and there was one marshal in particular that was incredibly kind and um I wish I knew I wish I knew his name just just really really special moment until I got back to the pits 
after the race and was told that all of the Peugeots had dropped out one by one with the same oh. technical problem and we were no. in third position. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no. So if you're going to ask me which is the race that is most memorable <laughs> for all the wrong reasons, that yeah. is the bloody one. Bloody hell. But, yeah. you know, what, a, what an experience though. Yeah, it was. It was a hell of an experience. And um, it's just so, something extraordinary. I mean, Le Mans fans are, are quite unique. I mean, it's probably you'd probably say the same about Formula One or Nürburgring 24 or Sebring right, or whatever, right. I suppose. But they're just completely and utterly obsessed with Le Mans. And if you show up as a driver and one year you happen to be wearing a blue and orange golf liveried race suit with an Aston Martin badge on it. I mean, for, for the four or five days you're there, you, you know, you're, you're treated like a rock star. It's, it's wow. insane. They have no idea who you are. They don't know your name, whatever. But as far as they're concerned, you're it. Um, and it's quite funny because it means you can't walk anywhere, whether it's in the paddock or in the city when you're doing this, this fabulous driver parade. You're just lynched and in a wonderful way and then <laughs> go back to your sort of caravan you get changed into your civvies <laughs> just go anywhere you want you're nobody. so many bats and eyelids <laughs> <laughs> crashing back down to earth yeah exactly, oh, exactly. that's brilliant though, but that is the spirit of racing and i think that's that's lovely and, and and so nice to hear from a driver's perspective um that you know uh, as an audience member or, or as an attendee to something like that that, that you're uh, you know your um, your love and admiration for for the, the race and for the drivers is is reciprocated. So that's really really nice. Oh, love massively. Yeah, massively. It's a really special place, and I sort of I have a weird love hate relationship with Le Mans now because I do the commentary for Eurosport. Yeah, and in a way, it's lovely to be back there and involved. And as a as a member of the media, obviously you can go anywhere you want speak to anyone you want you've got full access you you've got a grandstand seat literally of, of the whole event um which the fan in me absolutely loves and relishes but the driver in me bloody hates it absolutely <laughs> hates it it's it's so difficult to watch other people doing the thing that you love doing the most it's really weird really i can imagine yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. i have to I have to close the door on you, you know, in, in a lovely car and send you off down the road to, uh, to thrash it around. So I kind of, uh, I kind of yeah. uh, understand what you're saying, but, uh, but no, I can imagine for, for a racer, it must be tricky. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. Especially a couple of years ago, I did the pit lane reporters job for Eurosport from Le Mans. And, and that was because, because you have to tread really carefully. You have to really pick your moments and you're walking up and down, up and down, up and down the pit lane throughout the race poor cameraman in tow carrying a heavy camera on his shoulder and you're just waiting for moments to grab a driver and grab that interview but at the same time you're very aware they probably don't want to be interviewed or they're probably busy and there isn't really a good moment and frankly they could really do without it and it was such a weird feeling being on the other side of it. <laughs> it's really weird but I'll, I'll forever be more sympathetic i think if i'm ever asked for an interview in the middle of a race having done it of course. So tell me what your second car is for the five-car garage. Mm. Well, um, 
in keeping with the era and I, I'm, I'm a bit nervous you've had me sort of really worried about this list because why it's really hard to choose it's you know if a five car garage is 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 you know that's that's it you have five cars in your garage for the rest of your life then yeah. there's all sorts of things that um come into play with you know factors like practicality or you know do i need to be off-road or do right. i live on a road or you know exactly and, and do i need to put my family in the back all, all of these things or is it just the five most exciting cars that you can think of and 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 on and on it goes so um we probably at some point need to revisit this with some kind of parameters and rules to narrow it down but i'll uh <laughs> i'll give you my next having just banged on about you know do i need to be driving off road or put a family in the back my next yeah. car is the ferrari f40 this <laughs> 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 does neither a more utilitarian car you couldn't have chosen <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so, so why the f40 uh i just look i i'm 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 cringing a little bit because it feels like such a predictably sort of obvious choice but it's my childhood poster car that yeah. was that was it i remember the exact poster that i had and i remember exactly where it was on my wall and it was there for year after year and to me that was just as good as it got and the one thing that actually puts it into perspective i think a little bit we used to for years um traipsed down for the formula one to monaco and yeah. uh, much my mum's chagrin i think um, <laughs> and uh, i loved as a kid walking around to what was then called the lowe's hairpin by the mm. lowe's hotel and it was always a beauty parade of supercars outside. But I was a child in an era where that meant, you know, Lamborghini Countach mm. next to Ferrari Testarossa, you know, next to the odd aging Mura or whatever it was. Yeah, and yeah. Really cool stuff. And when the F40 came out, that was the unicorn. That was the thing you basically didn't see unless you were really lucky right and i remember on the odd occasion seeing an f40 down there parked outside that hotel and once actually on on one of the beautiful coastal roads that lead down into monaco i'll never forget the way one came roaring past and it was yeah. it was just it. it was it was just i mean it was it was extraordinary it was it was it was like meeting royalty it, it just something that you just for some reason, that car always had something extra, something special over anything and everything. And chucking the fact that it's stunning. I mean, it's just such a handsome-looking oh, car. Absolutely. Um, it wasn't really copying anything when it arrived mm. in terms of its looks. That's interesting. Uh, I don't really think it's been copied. I don't, it just It's quite unusual. It felt like a lovely evolution of everything that, was going on aesthetically in the brand at the time um yeah i um, think for me it managed to take sort of the femininity of the sort of 50s and 60s ferraris and marry it really well to the sort of overt masculinity of, of as you say like the trs and, and all that kind of stuff that had come or that were coming uh, you know concurrently with it and 
I think for me, like seeing it, I remember the first time I was aware of one. I'm a little bit younger than you, but I remember watching um, Goldeneye when it came, probably when it came to VHS. So you know, ninety eight, ninety nine. I was like you know eight or nine years old, yeah. And uh, and seeing one in in that opening sequence, seeing one dice around with the DB five. I mean, the thing looked angry. You know, it looked yeah. menacing. And yeah. Beautiful. yeah, 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 yeah. Angry and menacing. Yes, and somehow at the same time elegant and mm. breathtakingly beautiful and to achieve those two things at the exact same time I, I always think is an amazing skill from a designer and and they just they just nailed it and also it was such a step forward it was such an aggressive product to be releasing at a time where the previous benchmark i think was the 288 gto which right. was a little bit just you know like a sort of 308 gtb on steroids and yeah um, this was such a huge step forward, that enormous, shameless rear wing, and oh. the sheer width of the thing and brutality of it and the stripped interior, just just magical. And, you know, I've driven one since in anger. And oh, yeah. what I'm thrilled to report is that it just doesn't disappoint. Oh. It's exactly what you hope it will be, which is slightly terrifying, <laughs> utterly thrilling. A little bit crap in some ways, i.e., you know, the, the, the brakes feel as wooden as you like. Yeah. And therefore, that adds to the fear factor because the sheer speed that you can pick up in no time at all is immense. <laughs> so you, really need, you really need to feel some confidence from the brake pedal. Um, none is delivered. You know, the angle that steering wheel presents itself to you is ridiculous. It's like some kind of truck cabin or something that's really uh, like, like a go-kart at 45 degrees. Uh-huh. Uh, it's miles away from you. Nothing's adjustable. Brilliant. Um, and yet somehow none of it matters. Somehow you wouldn't want it any other way. It's wow. just, it's kind of, I mean, Ferrari have gotten away with all manner of sins and, oh, yeah. and we continue to forgive them, I think. But, but you know, there's something about the combination of all of those pros and cons that just make it so right and so great it's this sort of wonderfully flawed charm that um never fails to set your pants on fire you know it's just fantastic i think i think that's spot on i think our ability to forgive it for its misgivings you know mean that it is you know that is the mark of a true driver's car i think that's yeah and anything that's got you know uh, enough power to light it up sideways on the exit of frankly any t-junction any roundabout (laughs) any anything you want just on a dime is is okay with me but what's quite nice about i mean it's quite hard to manage it because it's it's got a reasonable amount of turbo lag but it doesn't take much getting used to but it just demands your absolute full attention and and i think the mark of any supercar that has the right to call itself a supercar is that you should you know you you should need to know what you're doing to drive this thing hard and you do need to know what you're doing you you know it it tram lines across the road like you can't believe i remember driving it down a country lane and it was hard enough just trundling along to keep the thing out of the ditch because it just follows any camber or bump and lump in the road and you're constantly correcting the steering wheel trying to stay in your lane um 
it's just it's just fantastic and and I'm, I'm very smugly able to say and shamelessly able to say that that on that same day i did drive a 288 gto and an f50 before oh, and after the f40 what and, a day uh, it's incredible absolutely incredible so this was all courtesy of of generosity of great mates of mine who's the same guy by the way who allowed chris harris to borrow his f40 and f50 to make what what oh. i think is one of the greatest youtube films of all time yeah what an uh answer. if you haven't seen it you know google it f40 f50 chris harris uh you'll find it very quickly and he just spends a day thrashing the pants off both of them up at anglesey and it's it's just magical because it's so rare to see those kind of cars driven as intended as they were designed to be driven yeah and um and that's why it's so 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 good but um the only reason for mentioning that is there's a lot of talk among collectors that the f50 is actually the special one and Ah. there's a lot of credibility to that the f50's got a naturally aspirated v12 which is based on the Formula One engine at the time. And I would say that the engine is better. It's nicer to have natural aspiration in that mm-hmm. kind of a car. Mm-hmm. You feel a little bit more connected. Um, the sound is better. You've still got a huge amount of horsepower. But there's one thing that kills the F50 for me from a driving experience point of view, which is that the steering rack is much slower. Really? And so you've got more lock from lock to lock is is more turns of the wheel and so it's less direct and it what it means is when you want to be controlling a nice drift on a nice armful of opposite lock you actually need to release your hands and get an extra quarter of a turn or whatever it is and it's just not quite the same Um, for me the mark of something that feels like a race car is you shouldn't need to turn the wheel any more than 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 what you can achieve you know that sort of 180 degree Mm -hmm. turn of the wheel that you can achieve before your arms cross over and lock out um but anyway that's uh sorry (laughs) i've got down a real detailed little uh sidetrack there but um, no that's really interesting that is it's really interesting and i think for many people listening and certainly when when you and i speak you know about this kind of stuff which is more often than not um i'm always left fascinated and educated by by the racing driver's perspective on um things and you know in our line of business when we're when we're you know when when i've got you driving um you know road cars uh with sort of some racing pedigree it's always very interesting to gauge your uh, you know, just canvas your opinions after you've you've been in them, been, been behind the wheel. Mm. I wonder if um, if there's anything, and I presume the F40 is is one of the answers, if not the only answer. Is there anything that you've driven on the road which gives you a similar sensation to when you're racing? Um, bum bum ba. Good question. Nothing springs to mind. Um... It's a funny thing. I, I'm, I sadly, I fall into one of the, into that category of racing driver that isn't massively excited about road cars. Yeah, um, which you is why disagree about this all the time, right? Yeah, I, I, I sort of often think that it's, it's also, by the way, why why I can get so excited about something like an F40 because, in a weird way, when you're completely spoiled with the experience, the regular experience of racing cars on racing circuits, driven at the limit very often when you get on the road you just want to chill because most road cars compared to race cars understandably are just a bit crap 
they're a bit soft or a bit less powerful or a bit less precise or whatever. Yeah. They're just a bit crap. So they're, they're less rewarding to chuck around on the limit than even a very humble racing car on a racing circuit. And so I quite often just kind of, I'm quite happy to chill or, or really appreciate a car for its aesthetic um, and not worry too much about the driving experience necessarily on the road. Um, but then something like an F40 comes along and even though it's a road car still just knocks your socks off, which to me is why I get so excited about them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And again, um, you know, it's something you and I often talk about and um, it's really opened my perspective on on road cars, you know, judging them somewhat through the eyes and the merits of, of you know, racing cars and cars that have been made up to racing specs. So it's, it's always interesting. Um, although, yeah, I will I will never forgive you for not sharing in my excitement when, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> launch a new hypercar or, you know, because your first question is always or your first comment or remark is always, well, they're not going to race it. So, you know, eh, what's the point? <laughs> and, um, I think, uh, yeah. So, so my 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 sort of eye roll on those mm. things is born of a frustration that buyers are so often lured into spending two, three, even four times yeah. the amount that they would need to spend to go and buy uh, uh, whatever an X, a GT3 race car. A, Porsche Carrera car, yeah, car yeah. whatever, which they can also use on track, by the way. So, a lot, so the, sorry, I, I haven't explained it very clearly, but a lot of the hypercar type stuff that you're referring to or stuff that makes me slightly eye roll is, mm -hmm. is track only cars. And, right. and that's quite a common theme these days, getting a lot of cars that you can only use on track coming to market. Yeah. And I think, are you, what are you joking? Why would anyone spend whatever? a million quid on that when for a quarter of the price you can go and buy a higher performing better to drive more built for purpose gt whatever car GT3, right free or whatever whatever and you, you've got a car with race provenance you spend a quarter of the money and it drives better and with both options you can still only do track days so what the hell this is right. ridiculous right and it's all marketing it's just bullshit and it drives me absolutely mad um but where it does differ i think if you can use said hypercar supercar whatever yeah on the road i get that that's a yeah. different that's a very different thing and if you've got something that's effectively a race car that's roadworthy much like right. McLaren f1 oh, that's yeah. a really special combination of characteristics not because you want to go and do racing speeds through the corners on public roads yes but it's just the wildness of driving a whatever you know a ex le mans mclaren f1 through some country lane on the way to a yeah. pub lunch with a mate yeah, like, yeah. it's just something what so completely nuts about that that makes it magical and and that's that i really like i think that's a point that people will resonate with i think um uh, I think that, that that rings true. I, I'll be interested to see. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with this, um, you know, with this newest crop of of super and, and certainly hyper cars, you know, and all the hybrid stuff, because, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm sure you know a little bit more about this than I do. But, uh, you know, the, Le Mans is opening up to, to certain categories again, right, for the first time in yep. terms of some of these cars. So they will be allowed to race um and and my hope is that you know we see a 
uh, a reemergence of you know because the thing that really bored me about Le Mans um, for the last certainly for the last few years um, has just been that none of the with the exception of the GT3 stuff you know none of the the big sort of factory teams the big the big pushes um, you know from Audi and Peugeot they don't look like cars you know they look like spaceships and um, whilst that's cool in on its own it doesn't inspire me to oh see yeah. you and i massively disagree on this i yeah. i just that is just sinful you know, what you just <laughs> said. i think that that the outlandishness the outrageousness the otherworldliness of a of a current lmp1 le mans prototype is just so wonderfully nuts and crazy oh. and out there and over oh, the top oh. and and it's this it's these weird shapes that look like they've been created by aliens on mars and dropped down onto the you know pit straight at le mans it's just like what is that it's it's fantastic it is it's great because it's what's going to get the kids excited and if you're a six seven eight year old and you see this thing it's like what is that no but Um, i'm sorry but like but but you know no you're wrong (laughs) <laughs> to that point, yeah, exactly. To that point, you know, when when like we were kids, you know, it would be a case of watching like the BTCC and seeing like a Vauxhall Nova, you know, up on two wheels, probably smashing into his teammate. Yeah, you know? fair enough. Yeah, and yeah. and that's, I mean, but I, I I get it. I know it's different folks, different strokes, and and God, you know, you you and I are probably two of the. Uh, least educated people that can speak about um you know to speak about uh what the future of the car industry will be sure, in, sure. You know, in by the time that these kids who are watching Le Mans now um you know by the time they're buying cars and and, and, and yeah. our age but um yeah. certainly from my perspective you know I you know you can any if I if I go on YouTube and plumb in you know Le Mans followed by a year you know prior to you know the year 2000 basically or it's sort of mid 2000s um you're guaranteed i'm guaranteed to be far more titillated and excited by by the cars that are you know up at the front of the pack just because they you know bear resemblance to uh to the road goers but that's just personal preference i think there's a lot to be said for that so i i remember being quite vocal a few years ago about the fact that we seemed to be living through on the road car side of things an absolute golden age of supercar and hypercar Mm. creation and for me it all seemed to kick off when with the arrival of of these sort of quite niche new brands like Koenigsegg and right. you know, Pagani and yeah. uh, things like that brands that we would not heard of before but they were putting out cars that were really really cool really attractive yeah. really performing I mean the early early Koenigseggs weren't much but they really are now and you know, Mind blown. all the Zondas were magic from the start and and suddenly we had and that seems to sort of trigger this this outrageousness that you know whether it's Lamborghini or whoever f- followed and 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 the market started to become uh, arguably now too flooded with yet another hyper supercar right. whatever sprouting countless exhausts and fins and gizmos and when mostly all they'll do is do laps around harrods you know in london or whatever which which you know that kind of drives me crazy when it's it's just all guff with no substance but a lot of these cars actually don't fall into that category and a lot of them actually are bloody good cars and really beautifully made by really small little manufacturers and and i remember just thinking this is nuts because 
I love this golden era of, of road car creation that we seem to have been in the last decade or so, decade and a bit. And yet none of those, or a few of them, have really made it to the racetracks or particularly to the pinnacle of sports car racing, in my opinion, which is to Le Mans. Yeah. And there just wasn't a category for them. And it made no sense to me that you had these carbon fiber tubbed and bodied epic hypercars on the roads that should be an incredible basis for a great racing car. And yet the regulations in sports car racing, particularly at Le Mans, didn't cater for them. And it just made no sense to me at all. And we're now, the flip side to that, the silver lining to that was that at least we got these fabulous LMP1 prototypes that I love and you love. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But we sort of had this, it just felt like such a missed opportunity. Um, And now, They've tried to address it finally with the introduction of the new hypercar regulations that will form the basis of the premier LMP1 class from, uh, I think, the middle of, yeah, from 2021 into 22 that season. The season's confusing now because they start after Le Mans in the middle of the year and go on to the final final race of the year at Le Mans the following season. so I'm, I'm interested to see what comes of that. But the problem is already, you know, Toyota have released artwork of their sort of hypercar, which looks, let's just say, I, I hope the real thing is is more hypercar-esque and better looking than than, than, the, than the sort of mock-ups and, and things they've released. Right. Um, we did have Aston that they've now withdrawn which is yeah. sad yeah uh i can't remember the others i think persia might be coming in i can't quite remember but but it's not it's not the paganis it's not the Koenigseggs. it's it's not the singers it's yeah uh, or, or when i say singer i mean zinger or whatever it's called the, the yeah yeah um and that makes no sense to me like these are the cars that should be racing they're out there they exist they have a fan base. People can relate to them, recognize them. Right. And I'd love to see them being raced. Yeah. And I'd love to know the reason for that. I'm sure it's, I'm sure there are many reasons because, you know, you look at someone like, um, you know, Jim Glickenhaus, who has mm. kind of gone the opposite way, right. To, um, to, to some of the, you know, the manufacturers that you mentioned in that he, you know, his cars were only ever for racing. And now he's in the process. They're in the process of, of uh, you know putting to market um, a road-going version of the, yeah. of the race car, and I mean that for me is, you know, that's something to be really excited about because I think that car on the road, if 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 they manage to do as good a job on it as as we all know they can based on their racing history, I think that's going to be awesome. Oh, it would be really special, and 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 I just love seeing private, entrepreneurially minded, real passionate enthusiasts like that just saying you know what screw it i'm gonna build a supercar and put my name on it i just think it doesn't get much better than that and if they're then willing to go a step further and go racing in it oh, fantastic so yeah one wonderful initiative from them and i i wish them luck I, I i fear for them a little bit because it's an arms race at that level of the sport right budget dictates success um and you know you can be a wealthy guy but you're not as wealthy as the likes of Toyota. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, there's a limit to what you can expect from them. But if anything, that just makes their effort even more. Um, admirable. Yeah, admirable. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. 
All right. So moving on, what is the third car in your five-car garage? Well, uh, I'm now. I didn't realise this up front, but I'm now starting to get embarrassed that the, they're all from the same brand. <laughs> it's another Ferrari. <laughs> the thing is, so I was thinking about this. I I, I was nervous that um, you were going to give me grief for not having any imagination beyond Ferrari. Yes, and please. a, I decided I don't care what Joe thinks. Yeah. And then I decided. Um, <laughs> then I decided. Look, if I'm if I have to live with this one garage for the rest of my yeah, life and i want to i and i need i imagined all the keys lined up on the hooks by the by the door and oh i thought which, which is which am i going to get more excitement from reaching for a set of keys with a ferrari tag hanging off only them, you or only. a set of keys that has a mercedes tag hanging off them so and the answer to me is obvious so i and I, I hereby shamelessly announce my third <laughs> car yeah. as a ferrari <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, very specifically, uh, uh, and and maybe a bit too predictably, I don't know. Um, it's the ex Alain Delon California Spider that oh, created such waves in the press a few years ago when it was barn fun, a barn yeah, fun that was auctioned yeah. in Paris, and and uh, you know a, a, a huge story that everybody loved and. Um, yeah, it resonated with me that. Yeah, I mean that was you're right. The story I remember. Um, I think it was Octane had it as their their cover. Yeah, uh, cover story, and and it was yeah, it was it was an amazing story, an incredible find, a beautiful car, and um, and so 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 how would you have it then? Would you have it pre restoration or post? Pre restoration all day long. I was absolutely gutted to see that it had been restored back to its former glory which is a weird thing to say out loud because normally yeah. we're applauding people for yes. restoring things back to their former yeah. glory yeah. but there was something about this car um you know I, I don't like black cars in general it's black mm -hmm. um i have always liked california spiders appreciated admired them for their beauty i've never driven one so i'm not coming at this from a, a driver's standpoint specifically but there's something about the combination of characteristics that made this specific car so appealing to me, which was, you know, California Spider, you know, one of the rarest, most beautiful Ferraris ever made, ever. Uh, you know, maybe there's people out there that disagree with that, but I've, I've never met one. They only made 52 of the short wheelbase versions. And wow. actually, in interestingly, I think that the long wheelbase, which is the earlier version, is very beautiful as well um, but the short wheelbase means it's going to handle a bit better so slightly more sporty uh, sort of ride and response if you want from from the driver's seat and they only made 37 that had covered headlights which is essential to that just drop dead stunning aesthetic so you've got rarity which is something i normally don't care about but this ticks the boxes that makes the car look great mm. um I've always loved any classic car with yellow headlights. You know, oh. I think of them as French headlights. I don't that's know if right. that's true. I don't know if they're limited to France or whatever. But, but those, I referred to it earlier. When, when we used to traipse down, we used to drive down in that family Mitsubishi Shogun or Toyota Previa or whatever it was down to yeah. Monaco for the Grand Prix. It was at a time when, you know, you, you, cross, you cross the channel on the ferry 
and you get off the other side and everyone's driving around with yellow headlights. And mm -hmm. for that that's reason, I've always loved cars with yellow <laughs> headlights. And if I had the money, I'd put together a yellow headlight collection. You know, oh, that's, that, there's an idea. I'd love to. I'd absolutely that should love be to. an Instagram at the very <clears> least. Actually, that is a great idea. Let's do that. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. But um, this is one of the rare cow spiders that has yellow headlights. And, okay, it's black, which is a, happens to be a very good-looking color on that particular car. It's not a color I've ever gra gravitated to. It's got this wonderfully cool, glamorous retro story of super film star Alan Delon, you know, yeah. cool and, you know, his glamorous girlfriends and it was in the film and da da da. And, and so there's that nice kind of historical story to it. But the bit that I love the most <clears throat> is the fact that it was bought by a guy who's so passionate about the automobile that as he built his business as a sort of French industrialist, as he built his business up in post-war France, as he earned more and more money, became more wealthy, he started to buy cars that represented every era of the automobile thus far <clears throat> and every technical step of progress from an engineering standpoint that the automobile took. So he had all sorts of things, dozens and dozens of cars. Wow. And... Um, and his idea was to open a museum and, and that was his lifelong passion. And it was his adult life's work building this vast collection of cars, which included this. And what was so sad is that I think his business relied heavily on a government contract perhaps, and, and they lost that contract and the business went into liquidation and, um, very quickly, he, I, if I remember the story correctly, he had to ask his family to say nothing about the cars because inevitably, you know, the debt collectors are going to come banging at the door right. looking to, to seize any assets that they yeah. could. Yeah. And obviously they couldn't hide them all. There were so many cars, but many of them were tucked away. Um, exposed to the elements and I mean it's a Googler way to find this extraordinary story and, and the accompanying images but a lot of them were just kept under corrugated tin roofs at the back of a field and were, were found you know in 2014 I think it was you know with trees growing through some of them and what have you but this ex-Alain Delon California spider this Ferrari was obviously more special and that was kept in a barn and it was one of only, I think, a couple of cars that, they, that he actually put into a barn. And so it didn't deteriorate quite as much. But what was so lovely when they found it is it still had you know, a stack, a massive stack of car magazines tied up in, in right. string in a pile yeah. on the rear boot, which over the years had created a dent in the boot just under the weight of these <laughs> magazines. Um, and obviously it hadn't been looked after it didn't have a cover on it they'd think and 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 it had aged but it hadn't deteriorated to a point where it just looked like a pile of rust mm. it it just looked i think in the coolest way imaginable it looked used and it looked like it had a life and a, a history and a That's soul right. and character and when it showed up in Paris at the auction. I, I was just, I couldn't, 
I couldn't stop looking at it. I just was fascinated by this fabulously beaten up, priceless Ferrari. And the fact that it wasn't so highly polished and wasn't so picture perfect to me made it infinitely more cool than all of the others. But they were lovely little touches. I, I seem to remember they found some gifts, perhaps little Christmas gifts for his kids or grandkids or grandmothers. Little, I think little dinky car toys. Oh. Forgive me if I'm making this up, but in the glove box there were, you know, it, was, you know, it looked as though it was just the car was frozen in time. Like wow. perhaps that day he was going to drive it with the presents in the boot or whatever to his yes. family and yes. give them their gifts. Some some story like that. And, and, and I'm really sorry if I'm getting the details wrong but it's worth looking at because it's it's magical um and i think they found maybe one one or two of his old ties he's the sort of guy that used to wear a shirt and a tie just to you know go and mow the lawn for example fantastic yeah just just a cool guy so not only did it have this hyper glamorous sort of hollywood-esque sort of inner film driven by a french film star sort of early life it then had this sort of second chapter of its life where it was really loved by this really cool guy that's trying to do a really good thing, but it ended up in a very sad tale. And yet fast forward to 2014 and the sun is allowed to shine on this car again when they creak open that barn door for the first time in decades. And it just, that is magical. And this car rolled out covered in dust and chips and some deterioration. And, and obviously that dent on the boot, from the magazines and, and I saw it at Pebble Beach in that condition and, I, and I, actually was it in that condition I can't remember I think the first year maybe it was I forget because they, they left the dust on it right for, for certain uh, they, for a they certain left, time they left it for a while and I remember just thinking if I could have one car in the world that would be it and I wouldn't wow. change a thing wow and, uh, and then I saw it again a year or three later and they had done uh, let's say a reasonably gentle restoration but they they got rid of the dent and whatever. I just remember seeing it and it just looked, it, it was no longer unique. Do you know what I mean? It didn't, yeah. it, it was always the car that was, you instantly knew what it was. It was the superstar car and, and suddenly it looked kind of like all the other polished, yeah, yeah. boiled sweets on the lawn at Pebble. You know? Right. And that's interesting, right? Because, you know, you're someone and you've mentioned this, you know, you've had this, um, you know, you've had a, a wonderful career as a racer. You're a, you're a driver coach. You know, you're deeply embedded in the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the gentleman driver scene and all that kind of stuff. But you're also someone who, um, who you know, helps uh, people to acquire the cars that they, that they love. And I know that you specialize within that in race cars. And so I do, yeah. you racing history and, and, you know, a car having a story. And having, um, you know, all that kind of, you know, wearing those, uh, wearing its history on its, uh, on its body and on its, uh, you know, um, mechanics is really important. And it's, it's really fascinating to see that you have such an affinity with, with road cars doing the same. So I presume that, you know, an extension of, uh, of, of your impressions of the uh, Alain Delon car and, and how you keep it, you know, as it was, would you... Um, would you uh, kind of keep all your other cars? You know, would you would you allow the the six four one to to sort of wear you know melted rubber over the <laughs> over the wheels? And you know, you, you wouldn't be out there meticulously polishing the, wow. the F forty, I imagine. Good question, a great great and very fair question as well. And I and, and the answer is, I think it depends on the car. So um, you know, I wouldn't want to rest 
a stack of magazines on the roof of my F40 in order to <laughs> achieve a dent in the roof. Um, but at the same time, I would definitely not uh, not treat it like a garage queen. Right. You know, I, I, there's nothing. Oh God, I, I'm literally envisioning it now. I can't imagine anything cooler than you know coming back after an uh, a Sunday afternoon blast on a on a wet, oh, slightly yeah, muddy. Yeah. Sunday afternoon day and then and then covering my otherwise immaculate F40 in mud and grit and, and and just looking at it through the window for the rest of the day I would love that um and then take great pride in cleaning it up and getting it all spick and span again good man yeah I agree I mean hey just a word of advice though don't let your uh Range Rover hear you saying that because because uh, that thing hasn't had a wash in a while <laughs> driven that poor beast let me tell you that thing is in in barn fine condition (laughs) so rude it's not (laughs) that is an absolute minter i will have you (laughs) you're a true car you're calling that a minter mate (laughs) listen it came from extension of the royal family's household <laughs> there's very very esteemed uh, heritage to it all right okay all right all right this isn't for you to flog your uh, <laughs> your range over right yeah. come on then give me give me car number four another ferrari i presume well so look i kept car number four open for a while pending a, a live on-air conversation with you to clarify yeah. the rules and the That's parameters right. so the rules are there are no rules i want people to you know take this as literally or or as uh, you know or as outlandishly as they want i mean my five car garage which i will never reveal um what is yeah of course not of course not because then because then i the podcast would have been completed right because mine is the right one so Jeez. so once that's done i'll have to fold the whole uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um but mine is you know mine i've really thought about mine as if it were, you know, they were the last five cars that I was ever going to own. So I've got one that is my going to be my sort of, yeah, uh, family, you know, wagon. Yep. One is my really fun, you know, high horsepower. One's my sort of low horsepower beta. So, so that's how I've done it. But then I know other people who, whom I've spoken to have gone pure outlandish. And, and you know, okay. um, so, so, so with that, you know, the rules are there are no rules. Okay. That's so unhelpful. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks for that useless clarification. You're welcome. Um, all right. Well, look, in that case, I'm going to go with what I've put down here because um, so I originally kept the slot free because I was thinking, Joe, want me to have some kind, you know, everyone needs a daily driver. Everyone mm-hmm. needs something they can chuck the family in, chuck some yeah. shopping in, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, I'm not very good at that category. I don't really... I'm, I'm pretty terrible with modern road cars. They, they yeah. don't really register with me that well. I, I, I admire them from afar when I see them, but I often have sure. no clue what model of Audi RS, whatever it is that right, I'm, right, I'm looking right. at. And I know you do. And, and I, I love those <laughs> cars too. I just don't know anything about them. So I was going to get your advice on do I get a whatever, you know, right. freaking M5 Touring, whatever, Alpine, yeah. whatever, whatever, or some Audi RS thing. Right. Um, but... I have to say, if I had submitted one of those as one of my five, I'd have probably felt a little bit low about it. I can't say I would have been jumping with joy uh, or excited. And so I found a nice compromise, which is I realized there was was a car missing from my list. Every time I see one or see a photo of one reminds me how much I really love them and really want one and have tried to own one for 
probably nearly 10 years now and never yeah. quite managed it. But it also ticks the practicality box because I can chuck a couple of kids in the back. I can chuck the shopping in the boot. Okay. And yet it still excites me to look at it, even though it's not going to excite many people to drive it, I expect. That's interesting. Um, so what is it? Which Ferrari is it? So it is a Ferrari. <laughs> it is a Ferrari. Um, and it is, it is the early 70s so i think they produced it from 1972 until 1976 according to google um the early 70s ferrari 365 gt4 2 plus 2 aha okay now that's that's interesting because this is a car that i had next to no knowledge or appreciation for until you and i became friends and you you started on about this car, and I must say I've I've grown really fond of it. So you'll hear no uh, protestations from me. Okay, on this. okay, this is all an right. awesome choice. So, so this is this is going to be a family beater. Then this is going to be this the one is it. that's this, this is, down to Monaco if, for the twenty. Yeah, if if I only have five cars, this is the daily. This is it. And I would love to schlep down to Monaco or wherever. In it. Wouldn't it that is, be good? It is yeah. a fantastic Grand Tourer. You know, you've got a front-engine V12, which is about as classic a Ferrari kind of yeah. characteristic as you can get. And I would definitely... Um, pr- so, all right, let, let me go into the detail. For go those on. listening, perhaps, that don't know what this is, picture the really boxy, ugly ferrari that everyone slags off from <laughs> the early 80s and it's that basically <laughs> it's the one people that do know what i'm talking about will be shouting probably into their <laughs> airpods right now or, or mm. disconnecting from this podcast oh, um, but i love it now it's more commonly known as the ferrari 400 or the 400i which then iterated into the ferrari 412 which was Mm. the the last version of this car and this shape and uh later on it it got replaced with the 456 and the 550 marinello and so on but this is ferrari's front engine grand tourer and the first version of this car was called the 365 gt4 2 plus 2 and that's critically not to be confused with the 365 gt 2 plus 2 which is the queen mary which is an earlier shape retaining right. some of the curves of the 60s i think a little bit disproportionate but there's something charming there but it's 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 not for me i i like this one which is completely different and um i think just so attractive so 70s it's got lots of straight lines, but just one very subtle curve running throughout it. And the reason I've specifically gone for this first version of this car, the early 70s version, rather than, let's say, the, the sort of early 80s version, is because it has a couple of unique characteristics that were later ditched when they released the updated 400 and then the 400i and so on. And specifically, um, things in, like the, the things include a cluster of six rear lights instead of four so you've got three on each side Lovely. rather than two on each side 
both of which look great. There's just something really unusual about having mm-hmm. a cluster of three on, on each side of the, the number plate on the rear. Uh, I think very nice and attractive. But also the sort of starfish five-spoke alloy wheels have a very classic um, knockoff spinner, you know, the old beautiful mm, three-pointed knockoff uh, wheel spinner to, to, to hold it on. It's such an elegant touch. Um, and the later cars also had quite boxy square wing mirrors and a correct early 365 has uh, lovely old chrome mirrors which just give it a little hint of sort of remnants of leftover elegance yeah. from the 60s beautiful um and i would definitely take well actually i think they only did this one in manual um but you know it's a naturally aspirated four i think 4.4 four four and a half liter v12 so it'll be lovely and talky a very long leg car yeah um, you won't want to be chucking it in and drifting it around corners no, no, or anything no. but you know you probably could um, in fact, I think I've seen some some pretty interesting stuff on the internet where where they do do that. But if I, I I'm pretty this was Enzo's car, I think. I'm pretty sure it's what he drove. Wow, it's his daily, and it's just it's just oh man, it's just cool. And actually, it rose to fame. If anyone listening can remember the opening scene of Rain Man, the movie. Oh yeah, and there's a there's a a black it's not the early 365 but it's the same shape the same kind of car basically um and you've got tom cruise razzing through the desert i think in a black one uh but that's a later i think a 400 or 412 and then also it's in one of daft punk's music videos i forget the the tune right now but um Although it looks a bit weird, D badge, they took the Ferrari badge off it, which I suddenly realized is a critical component it to is. stop it looking like an old shed. Um, <laughs> but, like an old rover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um I just love it. And and I would I would perhaps controversially have it in metallic brown, marone. Yes. And um I'd have a sort of a biscuit interior, probably. Oh, delicious. Sort of tan interior of some kind, uh, manual gearbox. That's it. I'm done. That is that, that is a cracker. That is um. You'll yeah. You'll hear no objections from me on that. That is a that is a beautiful choice. I mean, it's interesting. The four twelve. You know, it get went on to become the four twelve, and then obviously we had the six one two, and now you know the eight one two. You you didn't ever think of putting a a modern car or 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 a you know a, a, a current Ferrari in in the liner. Honestly, I just don't know that. I don't know them well enough. I don't right. un- understand them well enough. Right. I don't. I don't love the looks as much, mm, um, mm, but I think I'm just showing my age there. I mean, I'm 40 years old. Um, wow. It's probably no mistake that I'm slightly gravitating towards the cars of my youth, but also sure. the, I suppose with the Cow Spider, the only reason that Cow Spider means anything to me is because it's my dad's dream car. So oh, you, know, yeah. you inherit that. Um, and then, yeah, th- definitely this, this, this one with with the 365 gt4 2 plus 2 that that's a bit of a sort of an outlier right it, uh, no one i can think of except for you now thankfully um, yeah, would, yeah. would agree with me on this oh, i love them i mean and yet the the degree to which i covered one is just massive <laughs> <laughs> well i remember weren't we were we in munich were we at peter muller's place we oh saw... yes oh yes and there was one there yeah you're right yeah you're right yeah yeah and yeah that, exactly. and that thing that that was a that was a good looking one but i mean it was a basket case right and you were you were ready to start writing checks 
I would have done if it, yeah, I, I, yeah, I need saving from myself because you know, <laughs> it's a talkie down <laughs> for a coffee. <laughs> I know, I need, I need to be very careful, but I, I do get carried away, and and you know, luckily, I don't have the funds to sort of support my <laughs> my car buying ambition, but um. I just think they're cool as hell yeah. and yeah. every now and again, you don't see them very often, but once in a blue moon, I see one trundling down a road here in London and I just think, oh, I'm so jealous. So whoever's at the wheel of that, that is I, very cool. it's just such a great shape. Yeah, yeah. Very cool car for London as well. I can imagine one parked up in Kensington somewhere, that would just look proper, that would look mega. Look so yeah, definitely. Until what, are they doing, what are they doing probably. in terms of... <laughs> the market what are they doing in terms of the market uh you know are they, are they, are they uh, uh, having a moment what are they doing i know it's good, all a disarray do you know it's a good question I, I haven't checked back in recently i think i saw a four a, a good condition 412 on classic driver for something outrageous you know 100 grand or something right, right, and, right. nice and, round number yeah exactly <laughs> and um i don't think that, well Certainly when I started looking, there was no price discrepancy at all between the iterations, the three iterations of the car, the 365 right. to the 400 to the 412. And then I think that purists cottoned on to the early version. Right. Possibly for similar reasons to me. And the, the, the problem with these cars is that, you know, any front engine Ferrari V12 from that era is hugely at risk of coming laden with issues and troubles that are going to cost you a fortune to stay on top of or fix. Yeah. Um, which rendered them to the kissy litter for years. Uh, and nobody wanted them. Nobody appreciated the shape. They were super expensive, unreliable, costly to maintain, and no one was doing anything with them. And then I think a few sort of purists may have picked up on it in the last whatever five ten years and some the odd person out there with the means has spent a ton of money restoring this one or that one and, and suddenly they started appearing on the market in occasionally immaculate condition for right. huge prices they went uh -huh. from being the you know whatever the sort of 17 grand 20 grand ferrari right. to, to something that's like whatever six figures yeah um, yeah and with everything's changing now you know um obviously cars don't matter in a world where people are fighting for their health and sadly a lot of people are fighting for their life so the market is quite understandably um reflecting that and, and prices yeah. are dropping and there will probably be who knows may, maybe a reasonably big correction on this kind of a car um, i see because it never had that much love in the first place it's not particularly rare it is quite expensive to restore or maintain. The audience for it isn't very big. So it's the sort of thing that that might get quite a big correction. Uh, and, and frankly, I hope it does. <laughs> I might be able to buy one. That's right. You and I will be uh, doing our, uh, our pilgrimages down to Monaco in, uh, in a pair of matching uh, uh, <laughs> brown and biscuit 365. Yeah. Yeah, 365, yeah. sorry. Beautiful. Yeah, I can only think of the insults people throw away oh on social media. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then bring me, uh, yeah. bring bring me home. Take me to your. What's your final? What's the final uh, car of your five car garage? Well, look, the final one in 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 terms of entertainment value is 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 terribly poor, um, but <laughs> I couldn't leave it out because it's special to me, and I mm. would almost feel guilty for not 
including it. And that is a car that I own. Uh, yes. And it's in, infuriatingly similar to the sort of thing we've just been discussing. But it's my 456 Ferrari GT. Awesome. Uh, which awesome. is a 1995 car. Uh-huh. And, you know, does the same thing as, as the car we were just talking about. It's a front engine V12. It's a Grand yeah. Tourer. You know, it's not the most dynamic looking thing. A lot of people think it's ugly as hell. Luckily, uh, you know, a lot of people seem to be in disagreement with that. And That's it's, right. You know, I sort of follow hashtag Ferrari 456 on oh, yes. Instagram things. And I'm so pleased to find there's this sort of fan base out there that just adores them. And plenty of people, weirdly, including the likes of Chris Harris and Dario Franchitti, seem to really love them and and that's brilliant Good. because quite right i have always loved them but i have to also admit that when i was 15 i would have been in 1995 when it was launched i didn't get it at all because that was right. the period when i loved you know the f40 and the f50 um and the 456 came out in its sort of promotional silver and it wasn't ferrari yeah, red and yeah. it had quite small wheels for its shape and i was like oh i just didn't get it at all but these days i absolutely love it and i think it's aging really gracefully they are i think it's very very pretty i think there's definitely the odd angle where the proportions aren't quite right but weirdly i'm even growing to love those for odd reasons now and um it's just it's just a really discreet really subtly attractive ferrari yeah and i love driving it because nobody looks at you and yet you're at the wheel of a ferrari right. and it's just it's just wonderful it well, feels like an event every time you drive it well that's lovely and that's really interesting isn't it because you know as we all know there's there's so much to be said for a car that gives you a gut check the moment that you first lay eyes on it or the moment that you you glance one you know uh flying past you uh, the other side of the street or whatever, but there is just as much to be said for a car, which, you know, like you said, maybe you don't even really pay much attention to it when it comes out, you know, the, the fanfare or lack of, you know, you, you pay no mind to that, but over, over time and over, over, um, you know, years and your, your, uh, tastes changing, you come to appreciate yeah. it. And, and, and it's really lovely to hear that, um, not only did your taste change enough for you to go out and buy one but also you know since you've had it you've you've you know your appreciation of it has has um has altered and changed and, and grown i think that's lovely so it's so tell it's, me, it's really great i mean i, I yeah. partly bought it because it was the cheap ferrari it was the only thing i could afford right and, you know i've had it for about four or five years now okay um and what's the story of it where did it come from <clears throat> It's, it's, well, it's good fun, actually. So I found it in the Czech Republic via an, an ad that appeared online for what felt like about five wow. minutes. So I happened to be online sort of browsing four, four, five, sixes. They, they were a car I was starting to find you know, really attractive. And thankfully, they were also right. really affordable compared to everything yeah. else that was going crazy. Felt like Ferrari values were you know, almost doubling overnight. It was just, everything was out of reach. And I was just suddenly thinking, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I've not yet had yeah. my first Ferrari and uh, wouldn't it be nice to have one? And I'm never going to be able to own one. And and the only thing that was vaguely affordable at the time was a 456. And um, God, I mean, <laughs> uh, talk about first world problems. But 
this um yeah if you'll indulge me so this thing showed up online and um for better or for worse i've always oh, loved yeah. green cars and beautiful, i particularly beautiful. love green ferraris these days mm-hmm. and have done for a long time and, and i know that's become a thing and it's kind of annoying because there was a time <laughs> where I felt like I was the only one and I was quite happy with that. Obviously, Don't I'm worry, we're going to be ahead of the curve on, on yellow like headlights. That'll be our thing. Was... Uh-huh. Yeah, let's do it. Um, but it was before, you know, yes. hashtag make green great again and all that stuff on Instagram. And up comes a 456 in the most beautiful, Ooh, yeah, dark, yeah. matte, sort of flat sort of British racing green deep and it's, oh. it's, it's third English, English green. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And um, anyway, click on the ad and it turns out to be the former car of none Fantastic. other than Mr. B, Brilliant. Rowan Atkinson. Um, I, I prefer to think of him yes. as sort of Blackadder <laughs> rather than Mr. Bean, but... Uh, <laughs> Johnny English. <laughs> um, yeah, or Johnny English. Um, Brilliant. But, uh, but it was his car new and that was really exciting and uh, so obviously you then hit google and up came all these photographs uh, of the brilliant. car from when Rowan owned it and uh-huh. and it it didn't look great to be honest I, I really had to wrap my head around well it didn't look great because as much as the green is, is yeah as a, 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 a great color there's two things number one is the right. interior right. is bright red Oof, leather yeah. like pillar box red which I actually don't mind a red interior with a green exterior. That works really well. But normally the best combination is when you have yes. a deep, dark, sort of cherry red interior or burgundy. I think I think that's a really nice combination. Uh, but still, the bright red didn't offend me too much. I kind of liked it, had a, a sense of occasion. But Rowan had smoked oh. it with green <laughs> carpets. And so there were these yes. pictures on the internet of the cars, you know, open doors, whatever. And it just looked a little bit like a Christmas tree. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm going to really have to force myself to like this. Um, And because it was, you know, really attractively priced, I thought, sod it. I'm going to go and see it anyway, because you can always change the interior if you want to. And, hey, this is Rowan Atkinson's car. How cool is that? You know? Um, And that was such a weird trip, because... I had to get on a flight. I didn't want to miss yeah. out on it in case it turned out to be something I wanted to, to, to try to buy. So I literally got on the next flight. I called, called this guy uh, in very limited English. Brilliant. invited me over to his place in the Czech Republic. And I got there and I drove my rental car into this very weird suburban town that was sort of eerily quiet. And as I'm following the sat-nav to this guy's address, I arrive at this... I can only describe it as what looks like a sort of security wall, right. sort of a bit of barbed wire fencing on the top of it. And I'm at, I'm at this weird gate, like about to go into some compound, utterly weird. And yeah, I'm, I'm now yeah. starting to get a bit nervous, a bit freaked out because you, you never know with cars. A bit dicey, can't it? Yeah. cars can be a bit of a weird dodgy, a bit dicey sometimes. Um, and the, this this security guard came out and met oh, me and right. demanded to take my passport yeah. from me and i i obviously handed it over <laughs> and as soon as i did it i thought what have i done um 
And uh, then I'm sort of waved into this compound beyond the sort of barbed wire and, and, oh, and just no. thinking, oh, yeah. this is going horribly wrong. I don't have my passport. Oh, I'm God. properly locked into <laughs> God knows what here for a car that came online oh, right. and then went offline just as quickly yeah and and yeah it was it was gone within a day that advert and um and then lo and behold i drive around the corner into this lovely courtyard that is surrounded with this collective private car garages and 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 he was wonderful his very charming character uh, slightly older guy. Obviously, made a load of money. He, he, he the way his sort of demeanor suggested he was sort of the local kingpin in town, you know. And um, it was very much like his his world. And and the house that was within this very heavily guarded compound was Lovely. the house that he had wow. grown up in, that his parents grew up in. He was still there, but he oh, bought cool. the houses either side of it to expand it and create this huge, big kind of pad. And he must have had a collection of. 30 cars really the weirdest collection i've ever seen i mean weird weird and wonderful uh all sorts of oddities and he had a he had a great passion for british um cars as well as italian and and you know the sort of the british racing green x row and atkinson ferrari 456 appealed to his tastes perfectly and he he had bought it about five or more years before from an auction and had owned it ever since. Um, and as soon as he started to peel, the nice thing, sorry, the nice thing was his cars Brilliant. were so well maintained and yeah. presented. His sort of garage showroom thing was immaculate. And he had a couple of guys working for him, polishing cars all day, every day. And, and so as he peeled the cover, I remember so oh, well, I had a yeah. red Ferrari dust cover on it. And as he peeled it back, he did so from the sort of rear corner oh. of the car just to reveal one of the rear headlights yes. and that sort of exhaust pipe cluster underneath. Oh. And as soon as he did that, I knew oh, I was no That's all I needed to see. It's just something about, oh, it's wonderful. I, seeing that green in real life was so much more attractive than seeing it on photographs. And what I have since learned is uh, if if the car is in flat light on a cloudy day, it's stunning. But on a sunny day, that green is no longer dark. It lifts oh, to a bit of a weird mid swampy green. It's not quite as nice. Um, but yeah. Sure <laughs> yeah, exactly. so perfect for England, right? And um, and I just I just saw it. and and then opened the door and I fell in love with all the red leather. Good. And I wasn't too offended by the green carpets, but I thought I thought at the time yeah, I could just yeah. change them. I just made them red and make it all matching, and I never got around to doing that. I'm so pleased I didn't because now I've grown to love it, and it really, I don't know, I, I, love, I that. love that yeah. it's Rowan's yeah. spec, you know, and it's original. Um, and then I since found uh, a copy of car magazine from i think 95 where rowan wrote a feature oh. article oh, on brilliant. multi-page feature oh. article on his car with photographs which is great fun um and there's a lovely letter in the history file from him but some an exchange uh between him and yes i think it's direct to italy direct to marinello when he's specking the car before purchase and he asks for green and they say no Oh. You're not having it in green. We don't want to do a green one. And he, and he says, work out by Aston Martin instead. 
And then wow. they say, oh, okay, 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 we'll do your green one. Brilliant. <laughs> this is wonderful. Um, so I kind of, I just have this, I was completely charmed by it. And um, I had an absolute, gosh, shit show. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. But when I, when I first bought it, uh, right. it has battery problems. And absolutely gutted because I... I needed to get some work done. I was recommended to this, in hindsight, oh, yeah. slightly dodgy place in the south of France. Did you take it straight um, from? Did I deliver the car to? Did you drive it back to the and take it straight down to this place in France? Or yes. Back to the UK or? No, right. no. I had it. I had it. I had it shipped. I had it shipped straight straight down there. Um, and uh, yeah, I just yeah. wanted it to just have the once over. I didn't want to start driving it hard without having a check over or anything like that. And. Um, I was absolutely gutted because I left it with these guys for a while. I spent a load of money. Oh. They turned out to be cowboys. And I, I eventually picked it up or went to pick it up. It wasn't ready. I had to wait all day to take the car away from the workshop, mm. literally stand watching them finishing right. the work. Not that there was really much to do. Um, and as I drove it away, I got about Oh, five miles down the road and it just conked out on me oh, and i'm no. stranded it's now dark i'm in south france and i didn't know anyone and all the no. people that have been doing work had since <laughs> left and weren't answering their phones and weren't oh, interested because no. they're just complete cowboys so it was yeah. a really terrible start with that car um and i eventually got it to good. uh some good good people back here and it turned out it just it just didn't have it had a shitty battery in it and um, needed a couple of plugs changing and, and with not very Brilliant. much work at all, it suddenly came alive and nothing made me happier than that oh. first drive when it had all its power and I suddenly just realised what the fuss is about a front-engine V12 Ferrari. It's just it's hard to describe. It's hard to replicate. It's just a really special feeling, a very talky, very linear, very long-legged car. And you just want to keep driving. You just want to drive south and not stop, basically. Wow. It's just, it's wow. Well, cool. It's fun. And and you can still, yeah, get Good. back out if you want around a roundabout. It's, it's, it's you know, so a long, a long wheelbase, rear-wheel drive car with a load of torque and quite a lot of power. So, you know, I wouldn't go thrash it, but if you want to yeah, have a little yeah. cheeky oh, drift fantastic. here and there, it's, well, it's great mate, for that. It's going to sit really, really well in that five-car garage with uh, all of its uh, all of its sister Ferraris. Uh, I've got uh, why don't be? <laughs> I'm be. so bad. Considering I'm you've gone for a single mark, uh, you know, garage, you've got probably the most variety that it would be possible to get from a single mark. I would, I would be interested to know, maybe that's a foolish statement, but I would be interested to know or to think about what other marks you could, you could go to and get five cars that were, you know, that all have such a distinct difference. It's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a fascinating collection of cars. Yeah. Um, I've got two more questions for you. Yeah. Uh, so the first one is. Sure. Shoot. Which road would your five car garage sit at the top of? That can be a you know that can be three miles that can be three hundred miles it doesn't matter uh, how how literally you want to take that where where would you what's your ideal driving road oh wow well given that there's no rules Absolutely. and I can fantasize as much as I like um, I'm I'm gonna assume <laughs> that I am the Prince of Monaco and can shut down shut down Good the roads idea. The for my personal Good idea. enjoyment 
whenever I like. I'm gonna have a sort of I'm gonna have a sort of bat phone in my office. So with one phone call, by the time I get the car out of the garage, and obviously it's gonna be yeah. the Ferrari six four one slash two Formula One car. Uh, by the time that's sort of fired up and I've got my suit on and oh. you know, pulling the helmet on, the roads will be cleared and closed and I'll Fantastic. have the Monaco Grand good, Prix circuit. A good answer. That is a bloody good answer. All right. <laughs> and uh, and finally, if you could only choose one of the five, which is your favourite? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah wow that's big um i'm gonna go with the wow. i'm gonna go with the f40 because it straddles you know the race car experience which i, I need in my life yeah you know like an intravenous sort of drip um and yet if i need to go to sainsbury's and pick up some groceries i can Perfect. so there you go. The F40. Bang on, mate. That is absolutely brilliant. All right, then. Well, Sam Hancock, thank you very, very much for taking the time and for uh, sharing with us your five-car garage. It's been a pleasure. This is oh, brilliant. I can't wait much, to mate. hear some more episodes. Well, that was it. Sam Hancock's five-car garage has now officially been entered into the vault. Um it was quite an interesting one. I always knew that he loved Ferraris, but uh, never to that degree. But I can't begrudge him uh, his five-car garage. I actually think it's kind of awesome. I'm pretty jealous uh, that he has such strong convictions about a single mark. Once again, Sam is on Instagram at Hancock underscore Sam, and I really do recommend you give him a follow because he's uh, an awesome guy and you'll get a lot of great car content out of that. He's uh, working for Petrolicious and collecting cars, uh, both of which are epic and and well worth your time and that's about it from me uh i just want to say that i really hope everyone's okay and uh and keeping happy and healthy during this um really uncertain and slightly strange time uh we'll be back next thursday where our guest will be will buxton the f1 commentator and journalist uh i'm really really excited to uh to let you guys hear that I'm on Instagram at Bo Jerry, and the uh, podcast is on Instagram at Five Car Garage Podcast. It would be fantastic to connect with you guys on there. Do send me in your idea of the perfect five car garage, and I'll repost it. It would be really cool to uh, see some of those. All right, thank you, everyone. Take care and uh, join us again soon. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs>